as we mature, the interest in metrics changes and we're definitely moving from, okay, I bought into the vision, show me that you're delivering on that because ultimately, unless you're growing the business, the vision is not going to be fulfilled and we need to grow the business to demonstrate that our vision is correct and we've got the right product market fit. This is People Building Businesses, the podcast from YB Ventures that delves into the stories of the best entrepreneurs and businesses in Australia. If you don't know about YB Ventures, our mission is to help startups to scale, scale-ups to succeed, and corporates to innovate. Find out more at ybfventures.com. Our guest on this episode is PropTech Hub member at YBF Sydney, Brett Saville. Brett's the CEO of Quantify Technology. Uh, they make lives better in homes, workplaces, and communities with their IoT uh, smart home technology devices. Its Q devices replace standard power outlets and light switches and can be controlled by voice, app, and touch. Super cool products. Before becoming CEO at Quantify, Brett's had a pretty extensive career. Some of the roles he's had include partner at PwC London, CFO at BAI Communications, if I'm pronouncing that right, mm -hmm. CEO at Free TV Australia, and lots of other things. Um, you know, he's also an advisor and consultant in various roles. So an exciting and somewhat eclectic career that spans multiple industries. I think you're trying to say that I'm old, aren't you, Jeff? <laughs> in a nutshell. Yeah, in a nutshell. Yeah, <laughs> they call it experience. Ah, right. So right, that's what we're, that's what we're getting I, to. I think Oscar Wilde once said experience is the name we give to our mistakes. So <laughs> hopefully that's not true in my case. Awesome. Well, Brett, welcome to the podcast. Great Thank to have you. you here. I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks, Jason. So uh, we like to do research into our guests. And uh, the first thing we noticed was that uh, you don't, it looks like you studied in the UK. So are you actually from the UK before you yes. moved to Australia? Yep. So uh, I grew up in the UK and uh, joined PwC in my 30s, worked at PwC for a number of years and then was lucky enough to be transferred to Amsterdam where I spent a number of years. So I've spent most of my career in Europe, mm. either in the UK, France or the Netherlands. And then about 15 years ago, we came to Australia. Amazing. And what was your early childhood like? We're going way back here uh, into your earliest days, earliest memories. What was your childhood like growing up in the UK? I came from a small town in what's called the home county, so a little bit outside of London. Uh, and um, I remember that my mum was a New Zealander, so there was an Antipodean connection even then. And we came to Australia and New Zealand sort of two or three times during my childhood. And I, I must have stored that somewhere in the back of my mind, which is why when I ended up marrying a New Zealander, we, we decided to make the move here. Amazing. And uh, you didn't study technology growing up. You did... Uh, yeah, well, I'm so old, Jason, that uh, you didn't... It wasn't actually, a thing. You didn't actually need to study anything particularly vocational when you went to university in the 80s. So I did something which I enjoy, which was um, literature and philosophy. And I spent three years reading books and discussing ideas and drinking beer uh, and playing rugby. So I was uh, quite happy to do that. And at the end of that, I went into a career afterwards. And there's this huge gap between 1986 and 1997 before you joined PwC that we can't quite figure out what you did between that period. <laughs> <laughs> I spent four and a half years of that living in France and I worked for a film company that was owned by L'Oreal. 
Interesting. And um, I was doing sort of film accounting and, uh, and management of the film rights. We ended up winning the Cannes Film Festival with a a very typical French film. It had Gerard Depardieu uh, and his son playing in it, uh, and it was a sort of basically two men dressed in black discussing philosophy across a ploughed field whilst Baroque music played in the background. And the French absolutely loved it, but it wasn't a great commercial success, even though it won the Cannes Film Festival. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's definitely not something you hear every day. Uh, so th this film, I'm, I'm just curious, uh, what aspects of philosophy did it touch on? It was about a Baroque composer. Okay. Uh, and it, essentially it was about the changes that were taking place in, in, in Europe at the time during yep. the 18th century and about th this composer's life. So when did you then make your uh, pivot into PwC? Well, after that, uh, I, um, the, the business was owned by L'Oreal Cosmetics and they had the opportunity to, um, you know, they didn't make a great financial return out of it, so they decided to, to split the business up and sell part of the catalogue to the US and the other part to a, a European producer. Uh, and so I sort of came, to, if you like, to a pivot in my career. I could mm. either stay with L'Oreal and dedicate my life to hair care, or I could move uh, and do something different. Um, and I had a bunch of friends who were consultants at the time and thought that was a really exciting area to be focused on. So I went into PwC and worked there. Okay, and what was your experience like working within the firm, just out of curiosity? Great. I always say to people who want, uh, who are interested in, in a career, one of the things that you get with consulting is a huge exposure to difficult problems, um, problems that the companies can't necessarily solve themselves. And then I think you get more experience doing that than you would do in a traditional line job. So it's very exciting for a period of time and there comes a period of time in your career where you have to decide, is that really what I want to do? Um, because as you progress, your role becomes much more about selling. Mm -hmm. Or if you prefer implementing, then you know maybe I should go into a line role, which is really what I decided that I wanted to do. Sure. Do you think that advice is still true today uh, regarding joining a, a big consulting firm to get that kind of experience? Or absolutely, I, I, I think you know two years at one of those consulting firms will probably be like four or five years in in, in another large corporate. Mm. But as I said, the one challenge is that whilst you're have complex problems thrown at you day in, day out from different organizations. Ultimately, the consultant isn't responsible for the implementation. Uh, and that's where the line roll comes up trumps because I think most people in their career want to know whether they can actually do the job, Sure, which was kind of what challenged me. Yeah. I mean, your career is interesting because most people, when they get to that partner level, they want to stay as a partner. You get all the benefits of being a partner, but you decided to, to leave PwC and, and join, uh, different companies like I think your next job after that was a director at Main Sheet Corporate. Hmm. Yeah, well, we we decided we wanted to come to Australia. Uh, and as I said, my wife's a Kiwi, we wanted to spend more time closer to her family. Um, I, I actually had the opportunity to work with Macquarie. And that was at the time when Macquarie could, um, the, the, there were the rivers of gold. And it seemed to me that it was a really interesting organization to work with. I had a couple of opportunities with them. I went and did that job at Mainsheet in the meantime, and then the job at Macquarie came up a short while later. Sure. And you then did another pivot into uh, becoming CFO at a company called BAI Which, no, that, and that was Macquarie. That so, was Macquarie. Ah, okay. So gotcha, yeah. at the time, Macquarie had a bunch of funds that were doing different things, roads, rail, and so forth. And this gotcha. was their first venture into telecommunications. 
And I, I knew that from my consulting days because I'd, I'd worked with PwC when we'd helped Macquarie buy the assets in the UK. And they offered me the chance to work with them for the assets that they'd acquired okay. uh, in Australia. So, yes, yeah, so I joined as CFO, spent a few years as CFO. The business was subsequently sold to another owner, the Canadian Pension Plan. And from there, I, I turned into the business development director. Gotcha. And, and you spent eight years of your life in that company. What was the experience like spending so much time to... To be it was it, it, it's amazing working with um, working with engineers I found to be surprisingly similar to working with accountants um, people are technically very adept uh, they don't always think about the customer as much as they might do but one of the great things is that there's really rarely a lot of politics so people engineers like accountants will usually tell you what they think straight away and can't be bothered with uh, <laughs> too much of office politics, which is a nice position to be in. It's all about the product and the numbers. That's right. Or it's about the technical solution. Okay. So I joined that company um, and the the then CEO wanted to make a step change in the business's performance. We had contracts with the ABC and SBS basically running their transmission networks and we wanted to use that as a platform to expand into other areas. And so over five years or so, we made a series of organic and inorganic investments. We acquired businesses in Singapore and Hong Kong. Mm. Um, and ultimately, the most exciting one was probably we owned a company that has the contract to run the Wi-Fi network in the New York subway. So all wow. telecommunications was run exclusively by this weird little Australian business that works for the ABC and SBS. How do you so, win clients all the way on the other side of the globe being an Australian-based company? The position of Hong Kong was very helpful. The Hong Kong business was seen to be a world leader in terms of the, if you've been on the Hong Kong subway, you'll know that the comms is outstanding, which is quite difficult in an underground environment where a train's traveling fast. So that gave us, a, if you like, credibility to go and talk to them. And I think the second thing was that um, we were lucky in that we, they had got the contract to roll out this network but they didn't have the funding to roll out the network mm. and so they realized that they didn't have and not w would not get the funding and so if they sold to us uh, we would provide significant funding it was about a 200 million dollar investment that we sure. had to make um, and at the same time they would keep a proportion of the upside for themselves yeah so it was a it was a it was a great deal and a really really exciting to do a sort of marquee project like that amazing was there anything interesting about the work culture in Australia that you've noticed comparing your, comparing it to the, to the UK or to Europe? Any key differences or, you know, interesting tidbits? <laughs> Not a great deal. I think Australia is still hugely multicultural. Um, you know, there are very few large countries that have 25% of the population born outside of that country. And that means that you're working with people from all over the world. I, I think you do that if you're in PwC in the UK, but even the UK, it's the figure isn't 25%. So I think it's the, that level of multiculturalism. I've also found Australia a, an odd mix of American culture and European culture. Okay, it's in what a, way? A, um, I, I think there's, a, there's probably a brashness and can-do attitude that you find in the US. Um, but at the same time, there's a few... English type behaviors as well. Okay. Do you prefer working in Australia relative to the UK and Europe? Ah, look, I, I, I enjoy 
Everywhere I worked, I, I, I've loved, and you've got to make the best of, of what, what's on offer. I think you know Australia is extraordinarily lucky to have had 27 years of uninterrupted yeah, growth. That's I think true. We've, we've been really lucky there. I think we have an enormous country with huge potential, a young workforce, so we've got a whole bunch of really powerful intangible assets that we need to, to capitalise to get the most out of what the country has to offer. And before we delve into more of your career, uh, just on that topic as well, what do you think? Hold, what do you think is holding back Australia from really being a center of tech and innovation, especially when you compare it to places like you know Silicon Valley or Tel Aviv or or even London? So the last five years have seen an extraordinary change in terms of funding available. You know, we've got um, enough capital has been raised in the past three or five years that it equates to the total amount that's ever been raised in terms of of venture capital, so I think there's sufficient funds in place, and they're funds that are approaching a billion dollars, which is, mm. which is obviously great. There seems to be, I think, uh, still a problem, despite all the work, of taking products and inventions from university and commercialising them. So one of the things that I find here, and I, I'll say, compare it to uh, the Netherlands or, or Germany. The interrelationship between academia and business is not standard in the way it is there. If you're a German manager, you will expect to probably have a PhD. You'll expect to have spent time in academia and to come back. And there aren't really dividing lines uh, in the way that there are here. And so I think Australia needs to work a lot harder because it it comes up very well in most of the surveys around the quality of the R&D, mm. but very poorly in terms of the quality of commercialization. So it's it's that area which government has tried to focus on to try and improve, but there's still a room to go. Yeah, and on the OECD rankings, Australia ranks pretty low in terms of commercialization capability mm. as well. Yeah, I, I mean, these days when people talk about entrepreneurship and technology and startups, uh, the, the common thing to hear is that you should drop out of university and, you know, take the risk and pursue your passions. You obviously don't think that's a, a great idea, do you? No, yeah, uh, I'm a bit too conservative. <laughs> sure, yeah, and that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I, I think the problem is for every uh, Bill Gates, did he yeah. finish at university? Or you, you, all, all you see are the exceptions, uh, and you don't see the 99 percent of kids that drop out and don't succeed. Sure, it's uh, a survivorship bias. Mm. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Jason. So then, after uh, after BI Communications, you did another pivot, another career pivot to become CEO well, at Free TV. Yeah, so Free TV, uh, and then I, I did that job for a, for a short period of time, and then I moved on to to Quantify. Hmm. And um, I think Free TV was fascinating. It's a joint venture owned by the broadcasters, um, as you can imagine. With digitization, the uh, broadcasters are under an enormous challenges from the trillion-dollar businesses of uh, Facebook and Google um, and others. And understanding how they can react and create a level playing field, both within the regulatory sphere but outside, is a, is a, is a key challenge for them. But I did that job for a short period of time, and then and then subsequent to that, I moved on to Quantify. Okay. And the story with Quantify was I stepped onto the board. There was a capital raising. The CEO was was sick, and he suggested to uh, me that I was the appropriate person because I was already on the board. I was based on the east coast and, and credible for investors that I should step in and take the CEO role. 
So I am a slight fraud in your podcasts because I'm not really an entrepreneur. Oh, well, you're building a business. So <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah, that's well, precisely your title. <laughs> so the, the background to the business is the founder was a, was a real entrepreneur. Uh, this was his second business and he had a, a vision, um, a vision that was quite a simple one, which is that if you look at your car today, it's got anti-locking brakes, it's got collision avoidance. 20 years ago, a car would not have had any of these things. It's quite difficult what each of those innovations does to your safety or driving experience, but what you know is that after 20 years of having them, you simply wouldn't buy a car without those things. If we look at houses, houses are really stuck where cars were 20 years ago. Smart home automation exists, but it is too expensive and it's too complex to be ubiquitous in everyone's house. And yet clearly the technology's there. I mean, you look at your smartphone, you know that if a smartphone can control all the things a smartphone controls, it shouldn't be beyond the realm of man to, um, to control a house as well. So what the founder did was he raised money on the capital markets, uh, very typical Perth, a business based in Perth, typical Perth thing, he reversed into a mining shell. Uh, and having done that, he raised I think about $16 million in the first year off the back of a vision that he had, which was essentially to take the reasons that the current suite of products in smart home automation weren't really making the mass market. And it was an extraordinarily bold and, and innovative thing to do because what he did was he took about three or four different aspects of what make these products difficult and expensive and came up with a, a new solution to eliminate that problem and therefore try and go mass market. So we now have a business that's listed on the ASX. Um, we have a team of hardware, software and firmware engineers based in Perth and most of the sales are on the East Coast. We've thought about whether we should sell to the retail market but in the end decided that this is still a professional product. So under Australian law, a um, an electrician has to be the one who installs a, a switch um, or, or a dimmer or whatever. So therefore, we focus very much on the professional market and the people that we're selling to are builders, electricians, architects, and so forth. And they're buying our stuff today because for a modest outlay, they want to differentiate new properties. They want to say, buy my apartment, buy my house. It's got smart home automation as well as having a great location or, or whatever. The evidence in the US is that having smart home automation adds about 50 grand to the value of a house. We don't yet have enough data here in, in Australia, but certainly from what I'm seeing, all of the leading builders are now experimenting with how can I put something in that will make people's lives easier, will save power, uh, and hopefully make their property safer at the same time for a, a modest outlay. Why did Quantify decide to start with switches? When people think about smart home automation, they you know, they think of the more consumer facing products like, um, like ring, you know, having like a doorbell mm -hmm. and, and camera, like, uh, LifeX or whatever else it is. So why did, why did quantify specifically start with the switch? Just, if I can just step back, what we actually started with was the connection to power. Mm. And at the moment you've got three global tech companies that we've already talked about. Google, uh, Amazon, Apple, all fighting out to be in every home. And what they've done is they've produced quite extraordinarily AI. 
And the issue with that AI, be it Alexa or, or Google Home or whatever, is that by itself, it's not connected to anything. So you can say dim the lights, turn off the air conditioner, whatever, and it won't do it because it's not connected. In order to connect, you need access to power and you need two things. Firstly, you need a sensor, something that tells you what power is being produced by the device, and secondly, an actuator. And without those things, you can't really enable those devices. So we started by saying, well, we can do smart light bulbs, but we think that isn't really a long-term solution because they get replaced and you actually to have real power, you need to be in the socket. You need to be controlling power. Mm. And because we're a small company, we thought we'd focus on the hardware, knowing that there was this fantastic software that we could enable using our, our devices. Great. And what was it like when you first stepped in as CEO, as, as a CEO stepping into a founder-led organization? Was there a step change required in terms of the culture of the organization when you stepped in? So the founder, uh, Mark Lappens, um, was a brilliant individual in terms of his technology vision and his ability to enthuse people around that vision. Uh, and he had you know, a really great following and a fantastic bunch of engineers that had left higher paid jobs, um, come out of the mining industry, chosen to do something else because they liked working with him, they liked the problems uh, that he was trying to solve and the solutions that he was presenting. What he hadn't done was really focus on commercialization, which is about, at the moment we've got products that have a wide range of applications. How do we narrow those applications down to the correct product market fit and perhaps not surprisingly we focused on um, the residential market there is 180,000 new homes built in Australia every year there's 10 million existing homes you know that's a very big market to, to automate over the next five to ten years um, and secondly as you said we, we focused on lighting because actually automation today is very much around lighting and lighting control so you mentioned your alarm in order to switch your alarm on or off very often you want that to be with the lighting as well yeah Sim similarly with ring you want it to control power you want it to have some sort of link with lighting so we thought that if we started with the lighting and the powerpoints then everything else would, would come around that we also knew that we didn't really have the strength or ability to go much more broadly than that particular hardware mm. which meant that going into ring or cctv just was really beyond the team that we had okay and and as ceo how did you change the company at that point because the company was three years old when you stepped in as a ceo so well, so so the first thing was really that product market fit yeah sitting down with the engineers and the team and saying look having spoken to our customers uh, having talked to our potential customers this is what they can sell today so I know that there's a whole range of things that we can do. Let's focus just on these things and make sure that we can deliver that. The second thing I think was having the right partners. If any one of your listeners does a search on smart home automation, you'll find three or 400 um, companies that operate in this space. And in a sense, that shows we're onto the right thing, but it also means that we face the unusual situation of having lots and lots of competitors. We will never have the funds to be able to invest in big TV advertising or billboard advertising. So therefore, what we have to do is rely very much on having the right partners. And for us, 
the primary partner was going to be Harvey Norman. So Harvey Norman has a franchise called Harvey Norman Commercial, which is the largest of all the franchises within the Harvey Norman Group, 350-odd million dollar a year business, and it sells directly to builders and so forth. So they were a perfect match to us. We had a, a, a relationship with them, and my job was really to say, okay, how do I get that relationship to be deeper and how, how do I get them to commit to being um, a significant partner for us, which, which fortunately they, they've actually done. The third thing was really to look at how we can operate at scale. So if we've got the right product market fit, if we've got the right partners in place commercialising, then we wanted to make sure that we, we could manufacture properly. Whilst it is fun to manufacture in Perth, um, we can certainly do that cost effectively for small batches as we grow that's never going to be appropriate so one of the the third thing that we as a team did was run a, a kind of a tender and choose uh, the right partner and in the end we ended up with a business called Caswell which is based in Taiwan which is a subsidiary of the Foxconn group so world's largest contract manufacturer they make the iPhone a really good partner for us to have as our volume grows Absolutely. And um, you mentioned partnerships with people like Harvey Norman, uh, mm. and I know you have a few others as well. Uh, how long and how complicated is it, is it for you to work out a deal with such a large company like Harvey Norman um, when you're a company like Quantify, who's in many ways still a very young company? I think what these bigger, more mature companies are looking for um, is, is confidence and trust and the fact that you're listening to them. And I think it's for, they know that we are an immature company with a with a product that needs some refining. We haven't been around for a hundred years, so one of the things that was very important was to be open and honest about where we were in our product roadmap, to win over their trust as to what we were going to do, and also to take their direction. So they've been very good with us in terms of actually the technical direction and the design direction. Okay. So they have some very clear ideas of what they know will sell. And it wasn't exactly what we were producing. So what we said was, look, we will we will make those changes for you um, and produce exactly what you think you can sell that shows that we're listening. And hopefully if you've gained people's trust, um, if you've followed up on what you said you were going to do, then, then the actual contract falls out of that. As CEO, how do you make the decision of whether or not to, to change your product roadmap or product direction based on customer feedback or to also carve uh, your product away from necessarily what the customer thinks is right? Uh, having been a consultant, you won't be, you won't be surprised <laughs> to hear that I use a cost-benefit analysis. So yes, sure, okay. actually what we do is we, we, we look at what the benefit will be and, and what the cost will be. Right. So I'll, I'll give a, a couple of examples. So um, our... Uh, UX uh, UI designer had designed something that looks very sleek. Uh, if you go onto the website, you'll see that um, th there's no cover to the fascia, there's no uh, icons. And what was interesting was Harvey Norman said, you know, that works with architects, but it will never work with homeowners. You need something much more functional. And whilst our UX UI designer was a bit frustrated that um, the design was going to be um, compromised, I think when we thought through the cost of doing this, which was reasonably minimal, and the benefit, which is they've got insights into how people use technology that we simply didn't have because we were a, a relatively small business, um, it made sense to go with what they were saying um, and, and not lose too much along the way. 
Okay. That's a really practical example, actually, because often people uh, on the podcast, I've asked this question before a few times and often it's a more philosophical answer uh, rather than a practical answer like the one you've given. So that's actually quite interesting. Well, I think, the, okay, and I, if I put myself in the shoes of your other interviewees, Jason, I, I would say that it depends on the situation. So Harvey Norman presented us with a wish list and we couldn't do the wish list. Sure. So we said, okay, well, let's just pick off one by one what makes most sense, what's easiest for us to change and most valuable to you. Yep. And then at the end of the uh, at the end of the process, there'll probably be something that will be hugely expensive for us uh, yep. and perhaps may not even be particularly valuable to them that we'll get to. Sure. And when you're working with a company like Harvey Norman or any of the customers, is being a public company more of a hindrance or a help? Um, it is definitely a help in day-to-day business. In day-to-day business, there is a suspicion about startups because there's a lack of transparency about the financials. Um, we are completely transparent as we have to be. We have our four C's. We have you know, anyone can go onto our website and see how much cash we've got, what our cash burn rate is. Um, and we're also very open about contracts that we sign, not, not the pricing, but certainly about the contracts. So anyone wanting to do business, um, it, it's very easy to see who we are. And I think with a, an equivalent size company that was privately held, they'd probably need more information. Sure. So what's the weakness? So the weakness, of course, is um, that transparency is not always helpful in commercial settings. And so there's a fine line between revealing the size of a contract to giving away your pricing, which is clearly a bad thing. Um, And there's a fine line between the amount of time that I spend on the business and the amount of time that I spend with my other customers, which are effectively the capital investors. So I have to spend a lot of time with capital markets. And how do you walk that fine line between revealing too much and revealing enough uh, when it comes to people who are accessing your books because you're a public company or who are thinking of becoming customers? It comes down to working out what investors really need. And I'll give you a, a, a recent example. We've signed up with a, a distributor who's basically going to go with us exclusively for three years um, using only our equipment for their you know, 100 to 400 apartments and townhouses that they're building every year. And Harvey Norman other ones distributing it, they clearly don't want to give away our pricing. So what we did was we simply said the value is more than half a million dollars. And so we gave an indication of size, which is sufficient for the investors sure. without giving away the actual pricing, which would be commercial to, to Harvey Norman. What about the other aspects of running a public company? Because a lot of the listeners here are entrepreneurs who are still running private companies or who are you know, hopefully thinking of going public if they're doing well. Uh, what is the experience like behind the curtain, running a public company versus a private company? My impression from working previously with privately held businesses is that you have very knowledgeable and experienced investors who will look very deeply into your um, products and your business model uh, and ask questions on a highly informed basis. With the capital markets you have some investors like that but you have a bunch who are not like that at all who simply spot what they think is a an underpriced opportunity so what i find quite intriguing about being on the asx is the 
number of questions that I get that are clearly very well informed by people that know the industry. And then there's a bunch where people are looking at making an investment in us versus making an investment in a mining business. So they they don't need to know anything about the technology. They need to have enough simply to grab in maybe a 30-second soundbite. Sure. And how do you straddle the line between being an extremely visionary CEO for a technology company versus being a, a realist who you know, knows what you have to work with and understands the realities of business. And I'll give you an example. Elon Musk is probably one of the most out there CEOs. Mm, mm. You know, he's extremely visionary. He makes very controversial statements, but that seems to have done well for his own, for his company, for, for Tesla and for his own public image. Whereas if it was any other CEO making those kinds of statements, you kind of go, you take it with a grain of salt. So, you know, as someone who's running a public company, is that a challenge you have to grapple with on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, um, as as a business, we we can only survive so long by promising that the market will be um, you know billions of dollars. Um, and until we actually demonstrate that, there's always going to be a certain amount of skepticism. So our product has some unique differentiators, and I think most of the investors understand that. We've got a, a worldwide patent on a modular design, which you know, future proofs your investment. We are entirely wireless, where a bunch of our competitors aren't. You know, we don't have gateways. So, so there's a, a number of quite tangible things that you can say, this is why we'll succeed. What the investors, as we've started to commercialize, are asking me is, tell me, I, I still don't see the link between um, Harvey Norman and their half a million dollar pre-order signing up for three years with Black and what I can see in the, in, in the cash flows on the four Cs. So as we mature, the interest in metrics changes and we're definitely moving from okay i bought into the vision show me that you're delivering on that because ultimately unless you're growing the business the vision is not going to be fulfilled and we need to grow the business to demonstrate that our vision is correct and we've got the right product market fit have you ever had a clash in vision between yourself and and mark as the original founder or have you always been aligned on what you needed to do to grow the business? Look, I, th- I think we're, we have been pretty pretty aligned. So what happened with Mark uh, was that w- when I stepped in, he stepped back. So he's now providing strategic advice as a, a non-executive director. And if we need uh, his technical know-how, then we'll dip back into that. But he's, he's happy to step back and, and leave the running to me and and re- really just focus on the more strategic issues the business faces, which could be strategic commercial or they could be strategic technical. Sure. Um, you mentioned patents earlier, and I understand you've just secured one in Egypt. And I think that takes you up to 13 countries now where you've got a patent for your product. What is the process like securing a patent, and why is it important to quantify? There's a lot of academic research which suggests that... Um, capital markets accurately values intangible property. They see value in intangible property and they certainly increase the value of businesses that have intangible property. Intangible property, the most direct way of demonstrating that you have some intangible asset is is through a patent. Um, A patent allows us to, gives us an unfair advantage. It means that we can produce something that other people can't produce. And having secured that patent, we then have to demonstrate that that's dif- that advantage is, is valuable. In our case, 
um, we have a patent on a, on a modular design. So with many of our competitors, if you installed them in your house and you worked off, so for the sake of argument, 3G, when 4G came along or 5G, you'd need to upgrade every switch or, or, or every device in your home. And that's clearly not sustainable. When we put a switch into our house, you'd expect it to last for 20 years. And in the past 20 years, we've had just on GSM, we've had four or five separate standards. It's true. Yeah. So our modular design is nothing to do with the technology, but effectively what it means is that under Australian law, an electrician has to install a switch. Our switch is effectively divided into three parts. The electrician installs it. There is a what we call a feature card, which looks a bit like a big fat SIM or one of those memory cards that you used to have in your phone. The homeowner can pull that out without recourse to an electrician and replace it with a different communication protocol. And effectively, we argue that future-proofs uh, our investment. The way a patent works is that you start off demonstrating that you have something new uh, and valuable, um, and we put patent applications into Australia. Having had it validated in Australia, we then need to follow other countries as well. So Egypt was a bit of an odd one, but it's been in process for some time and didn't really cost us very much. The important one was, was last year we had it proved by the US. And once you're in the US, which is effectively the most complex uh, patent um, country in the world, we know that most other countries will now accept what the US has said. So it's, it's great to have that validation. Um, we believe it provides a unique differentiator for us. Mm. It's not the only differentiator, but it's a unique differentiator that our competitors can't copy. Do you plan on continuing to roll out more products in the future that are patentable as well? Um, for the foreseeable future, our main patent, our only patent, will be the one that we've talked about. Sure. We, we have IP in other areas, but it's it's not necessarily going to be valuable to us today to try and get patents on them. Okay. What is your growth strategy like? Could you talk us through that? Because it seems like you, you're very heavy on uh, partnerships as one of the channels in which you grow. Uh, what are the other approaches that you have to, to growing Quantify? So a lot of the players in this space sell through distributors and it's important to have the right distributors, but ultimately the distributor will only push if there's demand pull. So one of the things that I've tried very hard to do is to create a bit of a brand for, for Quantify. Sure. So we were lucky enough to be on Better Homes and Gardens a couple of weeks ago, uh, which is Channel 7. We'll be on Channel 9 in a spin-off of The Block in um, in a few weeks' time. So right. we'll be on 7 and 9, which is, which is quite nice. So this stimulates awareness. It stimulates awareness at the retail end, but also obviously the builders and the developers who are looking for ideas from these shows. What we've also done is taken the woman off the program whose name is Natalie Bowen as our brand ambassador. And what's exciting about her is that she has a couple of hundred thousand Instagram followers. Um, she is from Perth, really likes the technology and has really bought into trying to help us as a business. So we use her not only to do blogs and posts, but I'd spend a lot of my time going around giving presentations with her. Sure. And it's it's interesting to see that there are a whole bunch of people that absolutely love the sort of minor celebrity that she is, yeah. but are really keen to get uh, advice from her. Most of the advice that they ask for is on what shade of grey should I use and what sort of pillows should I use. 
And that's why for us, she's actually a really good brand ambassador because she's in design. You don't normally associate smart tech with that, but we really wanted to make it be customer friendly. So you're sort of blending those two, the, the modern approach to, to marketing with the traditional approach of growth of, of partnerships in, in a sense. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that's fair enough. So creating, creating, um, creating demand is, 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 the, is the first thing. And then with the distributors, we need to work as deeply as we can with those distributors. And what that involves is we've got a small number of mid-tier builders who are really interested in what we're doing and have signed up with us. We have to demonstrate that that's a success. We have to demonstrate that the cost efficiencies that we believe that we can get from mass deployment do actually exist and see that those customers become repeat customers uh, and the business grows. Longer term, one of the reasons that I'm working with YBF and, um, and Honeywell is because we believe that we've got a great solution for the residential space, but commercial is a different market entirely. One of the challenges with the commercial market is you don't buy the things that we sell individually, you buy them as a total package. And so what I'm hoping is that working with, with YBF and, um, and Honeywell, they have the complete package. They have the building management system. They've got um, you know, systems specific to hospitality. They've got a range of products and a huge installed base with not just the top end of town, like sort of prisons and hospitals and so forth, but, but in many, many offices as well. So working with them, allowing our products to integrate with them will mean that we will have access to a market that would be quite difficult to access without them. Sure. And that's actually a great segue. You're part of the Honeywell PropTech Hub, as you've mentioned. Uh, what's your experience like been uh, through going through the, the PropTech Hub? It's been quite intriguing. So um, I knew YBF beforehand and I was very pleased to get the call about it. And we had looked at working with a range of, of large players and we felt that Honeywell was always going to be the best uh, commercial business for us to work with because they didn't have directly competing products to ours um, and they'd got a reputation of being a good partner. So we were delighted to be brought on and we've kicked it off a few months ago. We've had a series of workshops which is essentially trying to get everyone to know everybody else um, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. What I hope we'll get out of it is we will integrate with the Honeywell products, we'll trial a few in a few of their customers or a few new customers and hopefully out of that, we'll realize what the real value in the partnership is and therefore be able to structure something commercial out of it. Sure. So from my perspective, it's about testing what we've got is valuable to Honeywell and its customers and then using that as a platform to be able to say this is how we should alter the product to, sure. to make it commercial. And you mentioned that a big part of joining the hub was because you wanted to figure out your strategy of branching into commercial buildings rather mm. than focusing on, on residential. Uh, was there a reason why you didn't, want to double down on residential instead you're you're sort of tackling both markets at the same time not particularly i think it's just good to have options mm. um most of the players in this space do both um and i was aware that we didn't didn't have much to offer by ourselves okay and, and where do you think the future of automation within commercial buildings is heading towards i gave the example of the car at the very beginning of the interview uh, and the thing about the car is that you don't see any of that technology and that's where we have to get to. Mm. All of that technology uh, is in the background making decisions, helping you live your life more easily with lower power and more safely. Today, um, 
Amazon and Google both have functions which will allow you to to recognize patterns. And they'll say, Jason, I see that you normally lock your door at 9 o'clock at night. You've not done it tonight. Would you like me to do that for you? In the future, a little bit like switching on the anti-locking brakes, they just won't ask you. They'll just do those things. And obviously, you can override them if you want to. But if they've got to go back to you each time, then that's actually kind of neat, but not that helpful. Is privacy a big concern in that area? Yeah, um, when I give talks, probably 25% to a third of the time people ask about privacy. Um, the concerns are twofold. There are concerns in general about what privacy is in place, with, particularly with Google and Amazon, because they're the ones that dominate the smart speaker market. Uh, Apple is a bit smaller in that space. And then for those that are more technical, they tend to ask what layers of, of security have you actually got to stop either people hacking your stuff uh, or from the data from being stolen. And another good thing I think about our product is that we've tried very hard to put in industrial level security knowing that this was going to be a big issue. So we rely very much on our cloud platform in AWS which has its own security. Um, we have device authentication secure communication which just means that we've got two or three layers and for those of your listeners that are sort of into this space you know that there's never a magic bullet it's just about having multiple means of trying to repel people breaking into uh breaking into your devices great uh we've got only time for a few questions left i want to touch more on the fundraising side of things because it word in the street is that you're looking to raise about another 1.5 million in capital is that right yeah so uh we had a um we announced a capital raise at the beginning of the year, uh, and it is it's fully underwritten. So we've got a, a group of supporters. Oh, Congratulations! Uh, thanks. Got a group of supporters to come up and say, look, um, you know, we, if people don't take up the shortfall, we'll take up the shortfall. Um, that uh, has been a very wise move, uh, not by me, but by our brokers, because obviously the stock market is is very volatile at the moment with coronavirus and so forth. Mm. Um, and we, we've just actually closed closed that fundraise now. So we've raised the money. Um, and um, fortunately, we had the underwriters who were there to be, be able to pick up the shortfall. Fantastic. And has your history and experience in completing all these large M&A transactions uh, assisted you throughout your time in Quantify, especially because you're, you're, you know, raising, you're continuously raising capital as a technology company? Y yes, I think that's right. And I think... I, I think one of the things that you, I try to remind myself is that I've got two very different customers. So we have customers for our products and services, but we also have customers who who put their hard-earned capital. Very often, it's their super fund. They put their super fund into our business, yeah. and I need to treat those people as customers just as much as I need to treat the people who are customers for our products or services as customers. Excellent. What's your advice to anyone going through acquisitions, given that you've got such an extensive history of you know, being on both sides of the table, I suppose? Mm, that's a difficult one, Jason. Uh, all right. Um, I think the first thing I would say is focus on completing the acquisition before you integrate it. One of the problems that I've seen companies get into is if they try and integrate too soon, mm -hmm. they end up buying something which is subtly different to what they thought they'd bought for no no reason than life can be very 
know, you, you, you just don't have all the facts when you're doing your due diligence. And what ends up happening is that you integrate and then you lose what you've said. So the acquisitions that I've seen as the most successful were very often ones where the business was, was acquired, um, a few small actions were taken that were there to drive value in the acquisition, but there wasn't a wholesale integration straight away until the acquirer understood. I think the second thing I'd say is there's usually two or three drivers of acquisitions in terms of value. Um, when we, when I was at BAI and we bought the business in New York, it was clearly um, they had a contract to roll out a network that they hadn't rolled out. And so the biggest driver for us was to get that network rolled out. And a lot of other stuff that we um, that we had to do was really quite peripheral in terms of, of driving value. Um, and I think the other thing is probably around people. Um, and what I'd say there is you need to trust the people you're working with. And if you lose that trust, you're unlikely to get it back. So the acquisitions that have tended to work well, I've found you've made a fairly quick decision on the people to keep them or regrettably sometimes to let them go. Sure. Some some great nuggets of wisdom, Brett. Um, I want to end by bringing back to Quantify. What does the future look like for Quantify? We're on the cusp of growth. Um, we've um, now got distribution throughout all the main states in Australia. Um, there is demand for the product, which is great, and we're rolling that out. Um, what you'll see from us going forward is you'll see more awareness of us uh, at a um, on, on TV and, and more, more branding will take place. Um, you'll hear much more about us from distributors and, and installations. So more large developers will be rolling out our stuff and you'll be able to go and see it, not just in the display homes where it is today. And I think the third thing for us is really to take the IP that we've developed and just see how we can put it into new markets. And that's part of what we're doing with Honeywell. We've got some unique IP how do we apply that to the commercial space? And that's hopefully what we'll, we'll find out doing. Fantastic. Brett, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, if someone wanted to get in touch with you, how should they do that? Oh, just get, get in touch with me through the website. <laughs> <laughs>